0: A cancer diagnosis is scary. What's the right treatment? Does your insurance cover it? Can you afford it? I'm David Himmel. Join me on October 31st for a special branded episode of Pulse Check from our sponsor Pfizer. We'll be talking about innovative cancer treatments that can help improve patients' lives and we'll find out why they remain barriers to access for patients who need treatment the most.
1: Hello Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond coming to you in a special pop-up podcast at the Milken Institute's Future of Health Summit in Washington, D.C.
2: Catch up if I see you later.
1: It's a multi-day event that brings together policymakers, researchers, entrepreneurs, and more. (laughs) Were you in the neuroscience panel? Uh, Yeah, it was really cool. It was? It was cool. To discuss how to address the biggest health challenges. And what we're talking about on this episode, the future of organ transplants. Every step of the way. In July, the president signed an executive, executive order, order taking vital steps to increase the supply of kidney available transplants, to increase the supply of available kidneys and overhaul the transplant market. But even at a healthcare conference, it's not the most top of mind issue. How much did you follow the president's announcement this summer? Was it something that you saw closely or?
2: No, no, not at all. It's just something that I personally have always believed in. Have you
1: heard about this order? <laughs> you have some familiarity with that?
0: No, I haven't. Sorry about that. No, that's helpful. <laughs> that's
2: helpful.
1: <laughs> but for a core group, it's meant seismic change.
2: So, I am Piper Nieder-Sue. I am the Chair of Community and Government Engagement at Mayo Clinic.
1: The President's order on kidney donation and changing the transplant market, how closely have you followed that?
2: (laughs) Quite closely. I am a donor recipient myself, although I got a liver rather than a kidney last year, but something that's obviously very near and dear to my heart, and I'm very happy to see all of the concerted efforts around reforming the system to make it more beneficial for patients.
1: And when did you get an organ transplant?
2: Uh, July of last year. So relatively recently and doing very well.
1: When you're looking at the healthcare system and you've been on Capitol Hill, you're at Mayo Clinic now, where do you see the issue of organ donation transplants? Where do you see this on the priority list of things that need to be addressed?
2: So I think it should be a very high priority. It's obviously not a huge population of patients, but much larger than people necessarily anticipate. And you know, for each one of those patients, it is truly a life and death issue. So I think it's starting to get more attention. I wish that it was getting quite a bit more. We are just organ poor, right? So um, it's a very long wait for organs and you have to get very sick before you can get one. So we were fortunate to have the resources that I could travel around the country to other regions. Um, But that was very taxing on my family. I mean, we were constantly traveling at a time that I was very ill. I have a son in elementary school. This was very disruptive. And I think being able to treat people in optimal ways in the place that they live is probably one of the things that could be most meaningful for patients.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Well, I appreciate it. you got me right as I was coming yeah. down the stairs, so I'm a little. But it is true, man on the street.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. or a woman. Great. Woman on the street. The future of organ transplants. It's been a part of the healthcare system that doesn't get a lot of attention, and that lack of transparency has created problems. To talk about how the president's executive order is playing out and the challenges with organ transplants. I sat down with Greg Siegel. He's the co-founder of Organize, and we found a side room at the Milken conference away from the hustle and bustle, but you may still hear the occasional construction sound. Stay tuned for another special pop-up podcast tomorrow. And with that, here's my conversation with Greg Siegel. Greg Siegel, co-founder of Organize, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks for having me. I've heard of your organization before. You were innovators and residents in the Obama administration's HHS. Your name's come up a lot recently, too, because of President Trump and his administration's kidney executive order. What
0: is the elevator pitch for Organize? Uh, it's changed over the years. We started working in trying to modernize the technological infrastructure around uh the organ donor registration system, and the more we worked in the space, realized the problems were uh, far deeper than just how many people had registered as organ donors, and the work we do now is to work on reforming the system of government contractors who run the organ donation system called uh, Organ Procurement Organizations. The, the OPOs. OPOs for short. Yes, and the jargon of Washington, D.C. D- D.C. loves acronyms. When did you first have the germ of an idea that Organize was something you'd be creating? So, uh, Organize existed on, on cocktail napkins far before uh, it existed in uh, any legal structure or, or even that I knew what we were doing. But it was just sort of an idea that I couldn't put down. And I was, um, I'm one of four kids. And when my dad was in the hospital and it was on and off for five years, we all sort of assumed different roles. And my role was to just ask a ton of questions to be a good son, not because I was some aspiring entrepreneur, but I wanted my dad to be able to focus on. You know, watching the Red Sox or whatever make him happy, and not, uh, you know, with his, you know, um, you know, with his time and energy that he had to focus on understanding any sort of the broader system uh, in in which he was a patient. Um, and you know, I asked a ton of questions, and the answers just didn't make a lot of sense to me, candidly. And I, at first, I took that as you know I, I thought it was a personal failing that I just couldn't understand something, and at some point, I realized it's because the system was was very ill designed and, and things just didn't make a ton of sense uh and it was just something that I couldn't put down. It wasn't a purposeful um you know it, 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 it was never that I you know set out and knew that I wanted to do this and I can tell you the day I don't remember the date, but i can I, I can tell you the day where I realized I had to do this is when i I, I used to keep a notebook uh, next to my bed and when i when I can't sleep at three in the morning i I write down whatever it is that I'm thinking about. And usually in the light of day, it's something nonsensical that I I really shouldn't have lost any sleep over. But um, I have literally a a written record of what it is that I can't sleep thinking about. Uh, And I had another job at the time. I was working in venture capital. Uh, And at some point I looked through my notebook and for six straight months, I had literal proof of this is what is is keeping me up at night. And I think anyone with the ability, lifestyle, you know, unmarried without any kids, I, I did have that sort of flexibility and freedom. But yeah, I think anyone that is able to pursue something that they care so passionately about that they will literally lose sleep over, you should pursue if you can. And I had incontrovertible proof that this was, this was what was on my mind at 3 in the morning. I read a story in Fast Company from January 2014 and that you and your
1: co-founder wanted to put yourself out of business in five years because you would have addressed the problems that made your organization necessary. That story is almost six years
0: old. How is the progress toward putting yourself out of business going? Uh, it, you know, the executive order helped a lot. Uh, it, it certainly isn't um, you know, going to be the end of, uh, of what the, the push is to drive this reform. But you know, I, I think that five-year goal is a, a mix of being um, ambitious and uh, a bit young and quixotic. Uh, but the, you know, the sentiment behind it is that this is a solvable problem. Uh, and we wanted to identify what the key barriers were uh, that are keeping people from accessing the transplants that they need, uh, and figure out how can we stay hyper-focused and, and really create some before and after moments. Uh, and the executive order drove a lot towards it. And, and what we're working on now is uh, ensuring that it's you know, implemented as strongly as possible in patient interests. Most people have two working kidneys.
1: We only need one. Should everyone donate a kidney?
0: I think everyone should certainly, you know, consider it, especially if they know someone in their life who who might need one. That's clearly a hyper uh, personal decision. So I wouldn't say that everyone should donate a kidney, uh, but for most people, there's no reason that they shouldn't think about it and and certainly talk with their uh, care team if it's if if they certainly if they know somebody who would benefit from a transplant. Have you donated a kidney? Uh, I haven't. I've donated a lot of myself to the field of kidney transplant, but no body parts yet. You talked about learning your mission as
1: you were going, the idea that it's not just about increasing donor rates, but really about reforming these organ procurement organizations and how the process works. How early in your work did you realize you needed to shift missions and make it this more expansive goal?
0: So I think we realized fairly early, within you know a year or so, that, that there were problems far greater than just the um, uh, donor registration rates or sort of the public will to donate. Uh, that really crystallized for us when you had mentioned that we were something called an innovator-in-residence uh, in the um, Office of Secretary of, of Health and Human Services. While we were there, we were able to really perform some, some pretty deep data analysis, understanding the policy space and, and where the barriers were and where the gaps were. Uh, and that work was completed probably three years into our life cycle, and I think that really confirmed a lot of what we thought we knew but but really crystallized for us uh, what the problems were, and therefore what the, the solutions were that we should be focused on. So, um, you know, er, early on, we, you know, I think we certainly realized this was a far deeper problem than than we'd identified. But it was only after we had the data to support it that not only did we have the, you know, internal, uh, real deep self-belief that, that we were right, but but certainly that we could start communicating with policymakers about what the solutions would look like. I, I
1: ask in part because I've been covering healthcare for years, and the idea of increasing donor rates, that's come up before. This is seen as a public good, other countries do it better than the United States does, but what gets less attention is how these organizations work to procure the organs, whether enough organs are harvested and, and transplanted in time, and so many do not get uh, transplanted in time. They're, they're unusable. Your understanding of how that market works, Greg, is this an issue that there's just not enough transparency and eyes on these organizations? Is there some deeper fundamental problem with how the U.S. Oregon procurement
0: market is set up? So there may certainly be deeper problems, but I think so much uh, so much of what the problems are can really be solved even within the existing system by just ensuring that there's more transparency and, and more oversight. So um, for most people, uh, you know, I think they they are where Where you know, it sounds like uh, uh, you are, or maybe, or or where I started is understanding that um, there aren't enough. Uh, available organs, and we need to, you know, increase that supply of organs. And the most logical thing for people is I should register as an organ donor. Uh, most people have never heard of an organ procurement organization, an, an OPO. So um, I, I think that level of understanding is important, who they are and, and what they do. Uh, there are 58 OPOs across the country. They're federally designated monopoly contractors, each with a, a, a geographic monopoly. And when someone dies uh, in a hospital, whether or not they're registered as an organ donor, that hospital is supposed to refer the death to the OPO, and the OPO is supposed to, in all cases, show up and work with with next of kin. And if the person had registered, they you know talk to family and and, and move towards coordinating the, don- the donation. But even if the person had not registered, the family can still authorize it, uh, which isn't to say it's unimportant that you're registered as an organ donor. I I hope more people would 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 consider it. But what's interesting and what the research we were able to do shows is. Uh, probably the most predictive thing about whether or not a deceased person is going to become an organ donor is how their next of kin, on qualitative measures, uh, you know, would rate their experience, uh, their interface with the OPO. Okay, so let's translate that into into <laughs> uh, sure. not DCEs. How how their next of kin would experience the
1: process of
0: being in the hospital? Well, it's not being in the hospital. It's you know when the death uh, is referred to the OPO. It sounds like a very basic thing, and it is. But first of all, the OPO has to show up to all referrals. And uh, there's evidence, and there have been whistleblowers from the OPO industry which talk about that they don't show up for all referrals. And then secondly, they have to provide the next of kin with a, a good experience, and were they compassionate? Did they answer all of your questions? Conversely, did you feel pressured? Uh, and those are the sort of things which are, are really within the control of the OPO or the OPO's leadership to build a team and a culture that you know is doing all of these things. But research shows that there's huge variability across the OPOs in you know the way that they deliver these services. Uh, and um, the problem, I think, governmentally has been uh, OPOs are evaluated only on their self-reported uh, numbers, self-interpreted self-reported numbers. So although they may need to, you know, recover a certain percentage of donors in order to maintain their contracts, it is entirely up to them to report what number they did recover. They're grading themselves on their performance. Yes, yeah, so a, a baseball analogy would be uh, if you're trying to calculate a player's batting average and you know how many hits they had, and they get to tell you how many at-bats they had. You'd have a lot of Ted Williams uh, out Ted there. Williams, who hit
1: 400, <laughs> famously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, But that's only because he told us he only had 10 at-bats. Yeah, that's
0: exactly right. I think yeah. maybe we need to do some uh, retrospective analysis of Ted Williams. That's the next podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of the problem is so much of um, so much of what is going to matter about what donation rates will look like uh, in any geography is the strength of how well that OPO is run. And the federal government really has had no way of evaluating OPOs. And, uh, you know, when there's underperforming leadership, theoretically, they're supposed to be removed and replaced with better performing managers. But uh, under the current set of metrics for uh, which had been in place since 2006 but it's been almost it's been over 20 years since any of the OPOs have lost their contract even though all research would show it's an industry that recovers roughly 35% of uh, donation potential
1: looking forward not only have there
0: been problems in the
1: past with OPOs there is regulation coming to change how OPOs are governed yes
0: yes yeah, so in July uh, President Trump signed an executive order which directed uh, Department of Health and Human Services to propose new measures for evaluating OPO performance uh, and that is an enormously valuable first step. Uh, it's going to finally give government clarity about what performance actually looks like in the field, which OPOs are, are, are providing high service uh, uh, for patients for transplant patient, waiting list patients, and, and which ones aren't. The important question though, the executive order, um, you know, directed the implementation of new metrics. Uh, what hasn't yet been announced uh, or, or you know, signaled publicly in any way is, what level of performance is the government willing to accept? So, you know, the metrics are going to allow us to see who's a good performer and who's a bad performer, but what, need, what patients need is for government to ensure that we're creating a very high bar uh, for what the OPOs will have to, the performance bar for what they'll have to do, and that when someone misses that bar, that there is meaningful uh, consequence. We'll be back to my conversation with Greg Siegel in just a moment,
1: but first, a word from our sponsor.
0: What's at stake is everything. Everything that we hope for. I'm David Himmel. Advancements in science and technology are paving the way for some remarkable cancer treatments that can make a huge difference for patients. And yet, many people don't have access to them. David, healthcare is absolutely a team sport. Everyone needs to come together.
1: All the stakeholders, the biopharmaceutical companies, the health plans and payer organizations, physicians, the integrative delivery networks, and the patients and patient
0: organizations. We have to work together to find better creative solutions. Join me for a conversation with two healthcare leaders working to provide cancer patients with effective and affordable innovative treatments. The conversation takes place in a special branded episode of Pulse Check from our sponsor, Pfizer. Listen in on October 31st right here or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I've looked at your Twitter feed. It doesn't appear that you are historically a fan of President Trump, and yet you've extensively praised his
0: kidney order. Why? So this kidney order uh, is both going to help patients and taxpayers. Uh, the research the president cited at the signing of the executive order shows that there could be another twenty-eight thousand organs that are recovered every year, and uh, seventeen thousand of those are, are kidneys, which is you know I, I think primarily important because you can save another seventeen thousand lives uh, annually that way. But that's also going to create a uh, up to $12 billion in cost savings for a taxpayer over five years. So both patients and taxpayers should be huge uh, proponents of this. And I'm, I'm both a patient, uh, at least a patient family and a taxpayer. And this is just feels like such a no brainer solution, which has also been met with broad bipartisan uh, support, including with people uh, on the left who have been critical of, you know, the president and the administration in other healthcare initiatives. But this has been you know we liken it sometimes to almost a criminal justice 2.0, which this really is something which has transcended party lines and and has been met with broad support. Why do you think previous presidents didn't address this problem? I think so much of it is the data that it didn't exist necessarily to show very granularly what the what the problem was and, and what the solutions were uh, is is the first answer is it's one thing to say there's a problem, uh, but to make policy you, you need to really understand what the solution would look like too. Uh, and historically, because OPOs have always been able to self-interpret and self-report their own data, it's really made very fuzzy, the uh, process of, of policy making. So I think a lot of the work, candidly, that we were able to do while we were uh, innovators in residence was uh, elucidating uh, from a policymaking standpoint. And then I think also given that, candidly, most people have n- never heard of an OPO, uh, so it hasn't been something that for most policy makers that, that they necessarily think this might play well with their constituents. And maybe if people understood it, I think certainly if people understood it, they'd be proponents of it. But it's only been recently uh, that I think there's been enough press attention to it. And cl- very closely related to that, of course, is the fact that there was an executive order which brought this to the fore. Um, you know, I always used to say, still say, uh, the easiest part of my job is convincing someone that our policy solutions are right. The hardest part of my job has been convincing that same person to do anything about it, um, which may or may not be unique to the work that we're doing. But I think the dynamic that has been uh, fundamentally changed uh, over the last few months is by virtue of the executive order, this really has been thrust to the fore. Uh, and it's finally getting the the attention and the spotlight that it really needs. It creates a framework for action and, and a driver for it, too.
1: We're talking on Tuesday at the Milken Institute's Future of Health Summit. You're not here to be a speaker, correct? Uh, correct. I'm not. Are, are you here prospecting for funding, making
0: connections for the future of Organize, something else? Uh, You know, this is, I'm not here uh, to to forward Organize necessarily, but this initiative is so important. And I think it needs to be understood by a lot of leaders in healthcare who can really, you know, forward this in many ways, even just, you know, uh, public support for it. Uh, So we're really trying to do a lot of that awareness building. There's so many thought makers, thought leaders uh, in in this room or uh, at the conference. (laughs) Not not in our podcast room, though. I think you, me, and and my producer,
1: Annie, we're all all with it. Thought Um, thought leader is kind of a high bar.
0: Yeah, but, but really support building. You know, our, our challenge has always been making more people aware of the issue. And uh, certainly this, this conference is, is full of people that you know, I, I think patients would benefit if more people in the room understood the problems with the OPO industry. Bringing it back to future of health, the ultimate
1: goal would be not transplanting, say, a kidney, but growing a new one in
0: a lab. How close are we to that goal? Uh, so I, I just disclosure. I'm a, a, a policy wonk. Uh, at this point, I'm not a, a scientist. I've been in this space for five years, six or seven years, maybe. Uh, I've every time I ask, the answers were probably 20 years away, and that seems to always be the answer. Uh, I sincerely hope people are wrong and that it's shorter. But uh, the um, the executive order also did help. Uh, um, Director or is helping to direct a lot of. Uh, Funding to um, initiative public-private partnership called Kidney X, which is going to be investing in a lot of these sorts of technological solutions. Uh, and this was also, you know, speaking to the you know bipartisan nature of this, where the Obama administration started um, w- was really looking. It was led by their Office of Science and Technology Policy. So a lot of where they started was trying to accelerate that sort of process as well. But in a field where you're so dependent on breakthroughs, it, it really is hard to, to schedule out when that breakthrough is going to come. We've talked a lot about what's in the executive order and the
1: positive aspects. Is there something missing from the EO, from this current initiative
0: that you wish was there? So I, I don't know that it would have necessarily been appropriate for uh, to be contained within the executive order itself. But what is important is that we go further than just... Um, outlining what the metrics would be for OPO uh, performance uh, to evaluate op- performance and moving towards setting a very high bar for what uh, we will accept from uh, uh, OPOs as performance uh, in order to maintain their contracts. And related to this, I think there's also an enormous opportunity for more congressional oversight. Um, you know, we've been spent this podcast talking about um, a lot of the problems with the evaluation of OPO performance in terms of what their outputs are. Uh, but there's also been historical uh, investigative reporting and OIG reports that have showed enormous fraud, waste and abuse. Uh, financially, OPOs spending money on uh, not just lavish salaries, but private planes and lavish five-star uh, you know, vacations at five-star hotels and golf tournaments. And OPOs are 100% financially reimbursed for all costs uh, that they incur, both direct and indirect. Uh, and there has been historically just reported out uh, a lot of uh, abusive financial behavior and other improprieties, even criminality. A couple executives from the Alabama opio, this was maybe five years ago, six years ago, uh, were sent to federal prison for um, a, a kickback scheme with a, a local funeral home uh, to defraud the taxpayers. Uh, and a lot of these behaviors, um, there just hasn't been governmental oversight what happened to the alabama opo is it still have its contract and yeah no, so no opo has lost a contract in in at least 20 years so that's going to include the alabama opo uh, from you know five or six years ago the los angeles opo had to repay half a million dollars and misspent taxpayer funds you know six or seven years ago uh so it's a transparency story but also an accountability story yeah, so, you know, the New York Times uh, editorial board recently weighed in, and I uh, use this quote a lot at conferences like uh, Milken, uh, but they they said that the industry was plagued by, uh, quote, an astounding lack of oversight and accountability, and their quote was in the nation's creaking monopolistic uh, organ donation industry, which leads to hundreds of thousands of missed potential uh, donations. Uh, but there just has been, you know... Uh, it's been hiding in plain sight. You can look back and see reporting over the last few years about underperformance and impropriety and all these sort of things. And what I always scratch my head about is it, there just hasn't been consequence. It's, it's not that a lot of these behaviors have gone unseen. They have. They've just gone unremediated. Last question. You came into the space because you had a
1: family member who needed a transplant. Now you've become a policy wonk. You've made this your life. Do you feel like that is the right approach for someone making change to have a personal story? that really drives you forward and helps you understand why this is an issue?
0: So uh, uh, it's a good question, and I'll, I'll answer it in two different ways. Uh, I, I learned about the organization space and the opioid industry because I had a personal connection. I, I, don't, I, I don't imagine I ever would have bothered to look or to understand. And this uh, is your my father waited five years for a heart transplant and subsequently uh one another aunt received a heart transplant and i have another aunt waiting now there's a clearly genetic issue in the family um which is what got me sort of uh you know involved and invested in understanding uh the space more out of necessity than anything else but i think it was a recognition uh, recognition that this is a problem that extended far further than my family if it were only my family i actually candidly think it might have been easier to walk away and this would have been some anomalous thing but understanding that this affects so many families and it's not some you know bizarre unique thing that 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 only mattered to us um so in that sense you know i i I think that i would hope that people you know have enough um you know a a broad enough vision uh in in what the field of vision in terms of what they care about that it doesn't have to be something that's so hyper specific to them to still have enough empathy to want to get involved and to care about it um but at the same time uh you know, Moving policy, uh, or anything you do, certainly trying to move policy, is a, a, a difficult a, and emotionally taxing and um, you know, laborious work that if you don't have some love, whether that comes from personal connection or, or in any other uh, mechanism, but if you don't have a deep love for what you want to do, um, you, know, it, uh, you may not be cut out for—you may not make it to the finish line. There
1: are a lot of fights that need to be fought yeah, along exactly. the way.
0: Greg Siegel, co-founder of Organize, thank
1: you for joining Politico Pulse Check. Thank you for having me. That's it for this special pop-up podcast from the Milken Institute. My thanks to Greg Siegel of Organize and Jeff Baum of the Milken Institute for making time and space for this conversation. Annie Reese produced this episode. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. We'll be back with another episode from the Milken Institute later this week. Thanks for listening.